Okay, okay. So, Oliver, who are we canceling today? Today we're going to cancel the concept of hopelessness and despair. That's a lot. Are we sure we can tackle all of that in one episode? Look, I know the world seems pretty bleak right now, but hopelessness is actually disinformation, as we'll get to later in the episode. Hmm, let's get into it. Hey everyone, I'm Caitlin Burns. And I'm Oliver Ashkline. And you're listening to Cancel Me Daddy. The show where we take a closer look at all the panic ground cancel culture. With thoughtful analysis. And verbal shitposting. Okay, um, so thank you everyone for your patience with us. I have been finishing up uh, an investigation uh, into the New York Times about their anti-trans bias, and that's been taking up my life, um, but it's finally out, um, which is a very stressful thing. That's been something that the Translash team uh, has been working on for, what, like a year and a half, two years. So uh, yeah, that feels really good to be out, and there's a lot of good information, but boy, is it bleak. (laughs) congratulations on getting such a big project out by the way thank you thank you and also your uh busyness uh meant i could take a little vacation so we love vacation in fact our interview today uh was recorded when i was on vacation uh but i was still there that's how much i love our listeners it's one of my favorite interviews that we've done in a long time it's really good it's, there's something, I, you know, one thing that uh, Caitlin and I talk about on the show is, you know, how to have uh, generative conversations, right? We talk about cancel culture a lot. And a lot of that is like people fighting, people like that. And, and you know, I'm sure that you've heard a shift in kind of, uh, we're, we're often trying to be more hopeful, less bleak, less uh, reactive. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that this episode is, uh, is really reflective of that. And I... I had such a wonderful conversation uh, with our guest, Bridget Todd, uh, who is the host of the podcast. There are no girls on the the internet. (laughs) Jinx. Yeah, and I'm excited about that. So let's get into it. I am so excited today that we're being joined by Bridget Todd to talk about disinformation and news and what it should be. Bridget is the host of iHeartRadio's There Are No Girls on the Internet podcast and also Beef, which uh, she just told us is a podcast about historical rivalries. That sounds very interesting. (laughs) Messy. Is it messy? It's messy. It's petty. It's but also it's insightful because you'd be surprised how often petty rivalries dr- have driven, you know, um, innovation in our world. So petty, ju- like messy, juicy, but also insightful. I'm definitely oh. checking this one out. Oh, please do. <laughs> so I've been thinking a lot about uh, disinformation news, you know, uh, propaganda, the stories that were told uh, growing up, how those things get perpetuated in, in, in our culture. And, you know, in, in terms of like, where I'm coming from with this. So I've been working on um, an investigation with Translash Media um, about the anti-trans hate movement. And we just came out with a big one about the way that uh, the New York Times has been influenced by Christian nationalist disinformation uh, and has a really heavy anti-trans bias. Um, And, you know, I think that when we think about the New York Times, we think, 
uh, like culturally about, oh, this is the most prestigious and most pa- like best paper with the best journalism. Um, but if we actually look at reality um, and we unpack our propaganda <laughs> um, that we've been infused with, like that's that's not true. The you know the institutions of media have always. Um, upheld systems of power have always perpetuated propaganda in, in these myths. That doesn't mean that they haven't also held some power to account um, or done important systems uh, reporting that looking at some of the ways that power um, is misused. But yeah, I don't know. I've just been been thinking a lot about that because when, when we look at these media institutions, they have so much power over uh, what we think and the cultural narratives that we tell ourselves. Yeah, I've seen this a lot. One thing about myths and disinformation that I think people sometimes get a little confused about is I think that for a lot of people, it's easy to clock something as a lie when it's about COVID or when it's about, you know, vaccines, right? Like people are like, okay, you shouldn't lie about that. But when it comes to identity, particularly for people who are traditionally marginalized, like Black folks, queer folks, trans folks, it's a lot harder for some people to see that as disinformation, when that's exactly what it is. And so the New York Times, I think, is such a fascinating but also horrifying situation because that's, it, it, as you said, Oliver, it's like the paper of note. So if the paper of note is pushing this vast disinformation campaign that pushes lies about trans folks under the guise of like, well, we're just asking questions like this. It's reasonable to present these questions. And people who maybe have never even thought about the issue before, or maybe don't even feel that strongly about it. That is their paper of note. That's what they associate with like a high standard of journalism. It is a real problem. And so I think that, I think that only recently are folks starting to be like, well, wait a minute, what are the implications when people have coordinated disinformation and misinformation campaigns about people who are already marginalized in society? It's definitely something that folks should be keeping an eye on. How can people, uh, you know, specifically news consumers, how can they, like, are there steps that people can follow to identify disinformation and misinformation in news coverage? Yeah, that's a great question. I would say if they've got a whole story and it's the actual evidence that they're back, that they're using to back up a whole story is like one person or like one mom or like, what, like one person with an opinion, start asking yourself, like, is this actually something that I should believe or is somebody pushing an agenda, right? And so I also think that for me personally, because disinformation is so like, it, it's so emotional. When I'm reading something that is disinformation or a lie online, my heart starts pounding. I, I get a little twitchy. It's almost like a mindfulness practice of like, when you read something that seems like it was tailor made Mm. for you to have a certain kind of reaction, that Mm. should be like a red flag to stop and really be a little bit critical about why that is. Because people who are just giving you honest information aren't invested in you having a specific kind of reaction to like emotional reaction to that information necessarily. So if if you feel like, I feel like my, my gears are being turned a little bit that should be like a, a a red flag for your spidey sense to start tingling and say like, wait, should I be looking at this with a little bit of a critical eye? But as Oliver was saying, with the New York Times specifically, people don't read the New York Times necessarily thinking that they need to be reading it with that much of a critical lens. And it mm-hmm. just, the way that outlets like that have really failed their readership and their audiences, because if you're reading the New York Times, you shouldn't have to be 
coming with the same kind of scrutiny that you would bring to just scrolling Twitter. Yet here we are. Yeah. So I, I, I agree in a perfect world, but I think we live in a very imperfect world, right? And I think that I think that it's a different kind of scrutiny that needs to be brought to the New York Times than scrolling. I've been thinking about this a lot, but like, you know, a lot of and and I would say that there's a difference between like the institution and individual reporters. Like at any institution, there are individual reporters doing good work, right? Um, now there are editors gatekeeping that reframing that work and so how much control individuals reporters have over their work is going to depend um story by story but i think that when we're we're looking at the new york times or media institutions with a lot of power a question i have is who benefits from this story who benefits from this framing is is this supporting you know power structures is this supporting um, you know, institutions, or is this supporting everyday people? Is this actually bringing power to account? Or is this actually giving us information that's that's valuable? Um, and I, th- I think that varies a lot. But I, I think that kind of that that power lens is really important to look at with institutions, because like the, the New York Times has an interest in the systems of power that exist currently. Right. Or they have an interest in, in, in maintaining that and they have an interest in making money. Um, our reporting showed that um, the publisher um, is really interested in courting right-wing audiences. And so it and so that's why we've seen um, a shift to the right at the New York Times. And so I think I think that we actually need a much more critical eye, um, and a different kind of critical eye with with institutions than than we do with necess- with with scrolling and individual people. If the New York Times is invested in courting a more right wing audience, then piece after piece after piece, and boy, is it a lot of pieces that mm-hmm. that kind of reinforce this idea that like this trend stuff has gone too far. Like if you if you think it's gone too far, that is a reasonable position. It doesn't <laughs> surprise me that like that's been their, you know, their party line if that's an audience that they're interested in like specifically courting. There's also been a lot of like obf- obf- I can't say this word, sorry, obfuscation. And I can't either. I mess it up every time. It's a tough one, you know? (laughs) Uh, You gotta break out the dictionary to sound it out sometimes. Uh, Obfuscation, I think, is what I'm going for. Um, In, like, how they refer to their sources. Um, You know, I remember, for example, they ran a story. This is, like, my bread and butter issue, obviously, because I cover trans issues for a living. Um, But they had the story a couple of months ago that was like um, schools transitioned their child and they didn't know, like that was the framing of the story. And they quoted this one dad and they like painted him as this like concerned liberal dad. And then like an hour of research by like trans Twitter uncovered this guy on Fox news calling trans people like demons okay, you know, I'm a journalist. I can tell the people who read me what's going on with that. But my reach is limited, right? I do not have the reach of a New York Times. I mean, I consider that a a, a piece of disinformation now. And I don't think that there has been an adequate pushback on that specific disinformation. And I'm wondering if you had thoughts on like, how can we as journalists or maybe readers of news 
start to push back against, you know, really harmful framings of news and, and just out and out disinformation. Yeah, that example is really infuriating. Um, and it's it's not, it, we saw it around the whole panic around critical race theory, the whole panic mm-hmm. around book bans where they'll be interviewing somebody and it's like, oh, just a concerned parent. Come to find out, not only is this someone who runs a, you know, Moms for Liberty group, but here, so I'm from Virginia. Half the time it'll be like, oh, you homeschool your kids. So you don't even have a, you don't even have a, a yeah. child in this school system. And you're just like coming to raise an issue because you want to be on Fox News. I think yeah. it's really a, 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 a larger kind of systemic culture, like culture shift that needs to happen. I think that we've gotten us to ourselves into a place where regular audiences have really been misinformed about the role of journalism where at this point, I think that there's a lot of people who say, oh, a journalist's job is to find both sides, tell both sides of an issue or like find a, a middle ground and like make a case for that as opposed to reporting the truth. Right. And so yeah. I think that we need like a cultural course correction about the role of journalism and journalists. Right. So like it's not a journalist's job to obscure a source's connection with a hate campaign. And in fact, if you're going to use that source as the entire basis for a piece, your readership should be aware of that. Like you're not doing your job if you, if you are not informing them of that. And so I think that we have in the last 10 years have really just like gotten away from the role of media and journalism and press. And we needed a massive cultural course correct. I think that like audiences need to be trained to understand that, yeah, if a journalist is, a journalist's job is not to report both sides of an issue that doesn't frankly have both sides, right? Like mm-hmm. issues about people's existence, whether they deserve rights, that is not an issue that has two sides to it. It is not a journalist's job to, to try to force it to be an issue where it's like, well, we got to hear both sides. <laughs> I think that it's really about a, a cultural course correction where journalists train readers on what they should be expecting from journalism and that readers come to expect that and demand that and be able to call it out when they're not getting it. Because once you start recognizing it, it's everywhere, right? There's so many stories that that just have one unreliable person as the source. And it's like, well, like, why was this elevated? Why was this in the New York Times? Like, why was this in the paper of note? So once you start looking for it, it's everywhere. So one thing that I've been grappling with is that even when reporting is factual and delving into important issues and not um, and, and, and is done well, right? We're we're looking at what what the what the problem is. We're illuminating something. Um, we're living in a world that is like very broken mm. in a lot of ways. And I think it leads like kind of this onslaught of really dark and bad news leaves people to despair and tune out. Um, And I think that that's what people in power want, right? They don't want us coming together um, and, and having hope for the world and actually changing things. Um. And so I've been kind of grappling with that because I, I kind of fell into a couple years of just like deep despair. And I feel like I'm like coming out of that and trying to like, <laughs> <laughs> t- 
try, trying to to have a little more hope Same for over. the future <laughs> and um you know recognize like we can do something um about the world we live in it takes all of us um you know i think that like i as an individual absolutely cannot change the world um us as individuals you know cannot make that big of it, but us together collectively can and so when we collectively despair um that that leads to all of these problems continuing and so i'm kind of trying to and and i do think that kind of like the the 24 hours news cycle a lot of daily news and even even important investigative reporting that that highlights um important issues just like leads us to despair and so i i'm kind of thinking through and and i um, and you know, I don't don't have all the answers yet, or maybe, or even that many. But like, what what does um, you know news look like that that um, gives people hope? Yeah, I mean, I first I have a question. I hope this isn't like too personal of a question, but you said that you were starting to come out of that feeling of like crippling despair. Uh, are do you? Do you think that that is in relation to like spending less time online and getting a little bit like offline a little bit? Certainly. Um, but that is only one, one piece. I think that, um, okay. Yeah. So I think that getting offline has helped my mental health. Um, but that hasn't helped me feel more hopeful about the world, right? Like I think because the the realities of the like, getting offline does not change the realities that I know about the world. Um, I think that things that have that are starting to give me hope is like reading um, actually some like abolitionist writing um, and kind of trying to shift my perspective and framing in um, larger like historical understandings of what's going on as opposed to. And, and kind of unlearning all of this propaganda. Um, so as as much as like a lot of the, the first part of unlearning the propaganda meant like, oh, no, despair, we live in the worst world. Like, what do we do? Um, and so kind of getting grounded in um, the work that's already been done around hope for the world and change Um and I think that like emergent strategies is is a good one where we're seeing, you know, change happens on a small scale. We I, I mean, I'm, I'm not an expert in any of this. So like take what I'm saying with a grain of salt, um, do your own reading. I've, uh, I think that um, Adrian Marie Brown's emergent strategies is a great place to start um, by making smaller changes in your community. You're building a better world on a small scale. And if we kind of all do that together and we all push for change, we don't have to change our national politics, for instance, because we can't do that. Um, we can we can say some things that um, you know impact it if we have a certain platform, but we can't change our national politics. We can't change these entrenched systems. What we can do is build a world outside of them. Mm. Um, build a world of um, you know collective care, of support. Um, out and and make local change, um, and you know over time, us working together can shift the world in a meaningful way. I love how you put that, and that's k- kind of what gives me hope too. I think that hopelessness, like collective hopelessness, is its own kind of disinformation. This mm. idea that keeps us grounded in a place of like, there's nothing we can do. There is no hope. We have already lost. You know, I think that. Unfortunately, we have a social media and digital ecosystem that I think rewards a lot of alarmist thinking and like 
kind of doomerism, I guess is the only word mm-hmm. I can think of. Yeah. I think that what what is not rewarded is like measured realism of like, well, things are bad, but I still believe in the power of people or things are bad, but there's still things we can do. Things are bad, but we could, we could, we could still win this, right? Like those are not things that necessarily are rewarded on our algorithms. And so they're not, they're not messages that we see a lot, but I think about like, I, I, I kind of went through a similar thing myself when it came to climate. I was a complete climate doomerism, doomerist for a while. I would be like, well, none of this shit matters. We're all going to die. Like, we may as well enjoy the like however many years we have left. And then I actually started talking to a lot of black and brown and indigenous young people who are in the climate justice movement. And they were like, oh, that is what oil companies and gas companies and corporations want you to think. Because when mm-hmm. you're like, it's already over, you just check out completely. You're not going to try to hold anybody accountable because what's what difference does it make? You're not going to try to take whatever like whatever action that you we could be taking or collective action we could be taking. Why bother? And so- I kind of had to come to see that I had given in to a disinformation campaign internally that totally benefited corporations and people in power. And so I think that the it's work for all of us to resist that because I don't know, it, it's, it's very enticing to just be like, I have, there's nothing I can do. We've already lost. So I may as well just do whatever I'm going to do and, and check out and not pay attention but that is a position that, that does not benefit us. It's a position that benefits those in power who want us to disengage. That's actually like a textbook thing that disinformers do, just trying to overwhelm people, make them feel like everything is so hopeless or everything is so chaotic that it doesn't make sense to, pay, to be checked in. Like, I'll yeah. own up and say that during the Trump administration, I started it being like, hashtag resist like remember that that whole thing by the end of it i was like i'm not i can't i can't even pay attention to what this guy is doing anymore for my own health and so i was like completely disengaged and just checked out of my own democracy so quickly and i think that that is what disinformers do they they want us to do that and so it really benefits them when we check out and the the more radical actual helpful solution is to do what you need to do to stay checked in. That doesn't mean doom scrolling and engaging with every alarmist out there who is telling you that the world is going to end tomorrow. It does mean being like realistically and groundedly checked into what's going on. It's interesting we're talking about this because this is something I've been thinking about a lot in relation to the trans rights movement, obviously, um, because there's a lot of doomerism going around on that front. Um, and I particularly get frustrated. I get frustrated because there are these social media folks who have very obviously grown their followings. And I'm not going to mention names because I don't want to start any fights. But they've grown their followings by being like Chicken Little, basically, mm. where it's like, this is, you know, this is the worst bill we've seen yet. This, you know, this, that and the other thing. And I realized that that I used to be one of those people, you know, I was one of those trans people who would, you know, say the sky is falling every time something new was proposed on the state level or, you know, back when I was covering Trump in particular, I think I served that role. And I've really come around on that, you know, recently because I've been thinking about like, I'm a white trans person who, you know, uh, was raised male, right? I was uh, assigned male at birth. So this is like my first experience with 
acute marginalization. And I think that a lot of the panic on the trans rights front comes from other white trans people like me. And I think we need to look at the history of our own movement where, you know, trans people have been in a worse legal position than they are right now. And like trans people in this country have survived worse legal, like legal situations than what we're heading towards. And also there are other marginalized people around us. Like if you look at like the Texas thing, right. Where they were, where the state wants to take away, you know, trans kids from their loving, supportive parents who are giving them like um, trans affirming care to minors like that foster system was designed to further marginalize like black, black and brown families. So like, there's a lot of solidarity and like we can look at other communities for strategies for how to deal with this stuff beyond just being like, well, you know, we can't win in the state legislature and the courts are stacked against us. Oh, well, I guess we'll just die now. You know, like there, there are other ways to combat this stuff that because of a lot of our backgrounds, we're not even thinking of. Mm. Um, and it's been an interesting journey getting to this place. And I think that people misinterpret when I when I try to provide that like cool headed analysis of like, look, you know, what was it the other day? I pointed out that five of the justices who voted in favor of Bostock, which gave LGBT people employment, civil rights protections in this country, are still on the court. Like, it's not just an automatic that every single LGBT case that goes in front of them is going to go against us, even now. Um, and I pointed that out, and people, like, jumped on me, saying, no, you're just a naive idiot. And I'm like, well... Am I like, I don't know about that. Like, I think we need to have some thought and care and like, we can't just assume that we've lost already. I apologize for the tangent. Sometimes I do these. <laughs> no, it's not a tangent at all. I, I, I have a lot of thoughts. First of all, I think that it's particularly weird to be having these kinds of conversations on social media platforms like Twitter in particular, because I don't think Twitter is a platform that rewards hope or being <laughs> measured. Like I always say, if you have something hopeful or joyful happening in your life, don't bring it to Twitter. People will find a way <laughs> to like, you'll, you'll, that's not the audience that, that like you should bring that to. And I think that people are really like afraid to sound like someone who's naive or hopeful on a platform like Twitter, where like, that's not just, that's just not what the vibe is over there. So that, I think that like the conversation happening on Twitter, I think is particularly interesting, but I also think Caitlin, like, I think it's kind of human nature to, to feel when things are rightfully like very tough to feel like, no one has ever had it tougher before. No one has ever experienced. Mm. This, is a, this is a uniquely tough spot that we find ourselves in. But it's a great time to become a scholar of history and other movements. Because if there's one thing our communities, marginalized communities have done, it is find a way out of no way, right? It is making, mm. making the best out of being given, given nothing. And I think that mm. like our communities do that time and time again. In fact, I don't have a lot of faith in like institutions or 
sometimes democracy. But the thing that I do have faith in is, is marginalized communities and the power that we have within us to, you know, not stop and, 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 and make a way. And so denying that or ignoring that or not seeing that again, is it's kind of giving way to another kind of disinformation campaign, like a soft disinformation campaign. But our, our communities have been up against walls of despair and still push through since the beginning. And I believe firmly that like we've done it before, we will do it again. But I also understand how when things are really bad and really scary, how it can feel like that's not possible, right? It's like, mm-hmm. I, 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 I deeply understand how that feels, I guess. And so mm-hmm. it, it, it's kind of a weird um, dichotomy of having to be like, yes, I, I understand that th- things are really hard and scary. I should not be in this situation, but also our movements have sustained through a lot and we'll do it again. Like, like having those two beliefs in your head at one time is tough, but I think that's really kind of what we have to do. Yeah. And I think Kate getting to, to what you're saying about the Supreme court, like, you know, I, I think that the, the court has had, you know, various politics, you know, it has been better and worse, but like that can't be the like be all end all. And that's never been the, the be all end all. Like people have existed forever in really hostile situations, queer and trans and black and brown people have. Um, and that is, and we're going to continue to to do that. And so it's how can we um, build, you know, our own communities of resistance? How can we learn from each other? How can we share knowledge um, and resources and support one another, um, regardless of what the, you know, national political realities are? And I think that you know, the the despair on various social media platforms, like that's that's not unintentional. Like that that's what that's what does well, right? Because there is those in power have a interest in making us feel bad, making us despair, and also yelling at each other and not coming together. Right. The more we yell at each other, the less solidarity there is. The le- and the reality is that it is a few people with a lot of money and power that are oppressing the rest of us. Like that is how it works. And so when the rest of us fight each other, instead of directing our attention at them, things are able to remain the same as they are and not get better. And we're not able to hold those folks to account. And so we, I think that, you know, something that I have been um, working on is directing my frustration um, that I, that I have with, 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 with various people or various and, and being like, okay, but what is actually the problem? Like I can yell about like cis white people all day and I can get really mad at them. But the reality is the overwhelming majority of them and all of them in my life are being oppressed by the same forces that are oppressing me and my mm-hmm. community and other communities. And so how how can how can while they, you know, they might not be able to see what's going on in the same way I'm seeing it, um, where is their common ground for the way that the world is bad and how we need to change it. 
Um, how can we build sol- solidarity? How can how can we share information? And also, how can how can we share that information in a way? One thing that I'm trying to have more space for is like people are messy and flawed and are not going to have perfect politics. And I don't have perfect politics. You know, I'm working on making them better and always will be, but like, I'm never going to be perfect and that's okay. And so, you know, how can I work with people who I might have really big disagreements with, you know, how can I be in community with people and help build a better world with people that what we see as a better world might not look exactly the same. Where are there the commonalities? Where can we work together? Um, and that's, that's hard, especially when folks are saying harmful things, but I'm trying to take a deeper breaths and meet people where they're at. Um, and, you know, am I going to get hurt by that sometimes? Am I going to be disappointed by that sometimes? Absolutely. Um, but, you know, directing my anger at people who are oppressed by the same systems and hurt by the same systems that are hurting the rest, like, that's that's not going to fix things. That's not going to to create generative change. And I'm trying to be more generative and less destructive. Oof, Oliver, I, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I have so much to say about this. I think we might have similar trajectories in terms of how we show up online in a kind of way. Cause I definitely, there was a time in my life where my activism and my work felt like it was like solely yelling at white folks on Twitter. And it was very satisfying in a kind of way. But at one point I had to step back and be like, this is, I I realized that that kind of online behavior definitely made, made my personal profile grow. Like, like you could like really, certainly. Yeah. Like you like the internet loves mess. The internet wants, like they want to see people fighting each other and yelling at each other. And like, they will gather to see that. But then I realized, like, I'm spending my time screaming at people who ultimately don't matter. Like, they're not, I'm not going to change, like, we're not, they're not having, we're not having some sort of, like, disagreement or something. It's like, I'm not going to be able to change their mind. I once spent an entire, like, charming vacation holed up in my room arguing with some creep on Twitter for, like, four hours. And I was like, my three-day three vacation, one full day was spent on that. That's when I knew I had a problem, right? And so <laughs> I, I have similarly kind of, like, stepped back and kind of made a personal, intentional commitment to, like, when I have disagreements online or when somebody is saying something, try to come with curiosity and not like, not like that, that like, I'm going to dunk on you, whatever. And like never giving people a show that's like, you know, these people are fighting. I want to see what, you know, what dunk they're able to get off of. And I'm going to say something that I think is like a little bit of a spicy take. Ooh, I love spicy takes. So, you know, I don't think I've ever (laughs) articulated this before. So bear with me. But I think that for the majority of people, there are big exceptions but for the majority of people, I don't think we find community on big public platforms like Twitter. I think that if you are someone who, you know, lives in a place where you don't have people who are who you see yourself reflected in, it totally makes sense to find community online. If you're somebody for whom like getting outside and getting out and about is is tough, totally makes sense to, to look for platforms like that to find community. I think people should be looking in like smaller, more intimate online spaces like discords or or, you know, closed off spaces, I think that our communities are much more 
IRL than they are on big open social media platforms. And I think that, you know, Oliver, you were talking about how if somebody like you, like none of us have perfect politics, when you encounter somebody who might be an ally, but like doesn't have perfect politics, I think that if you were encountering that person in in the meat space, IRL, it's a lot easier to like meet them where they are at, like find that common ground, you know, whatever you need to do than it is on a platform like Twitter. Because I just think Twitter has has us like hardwired to not do that, right? Hardwired to, to see somebody and be like, their politics are flawed. Now, obviously, there are people who are like, their politics are not just flawed. They're not people that you ever would want to be in community with. That's a different thing. But I do think that you're right that these systems win when we spend our time, our limited time and our limited energy and capacity fighting each other and screaming at each other because that's time that we're not fighting systems and screaming at institutions and screaming at people who really have power. And Mm -hmm. I, I agree. I think that like, I really thought that for, for a long time, I really was somebody who thought that like that was actually creating change, like one racist or one transphobe or one homophobe at a time on Twitter. But I think I was just creating a lot of noise and I don't think it really helped anything. And I think like it, it felt good in the moment. But when I look back, I'm like, oh, could, could that time have been spent doing something that was actually more personally fulfilling, but also just more effective? Mm-hmm. So what you're saying is we should stop arguing with arguing with Joe Blow on Twitter and start arguing with Joe Biden on Twitter. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Where can our listeners find you and your work going forward? Well, you can listen to my podcast. There are no girls on the internet. You can find it wherever. I mean, you're listening to this on a podcast, so you can probably find it. Uh, it's all, all the podcast places. Uh, you can listen to my other podcast with Next Chapter Podcast, Beef, as well. Uh, and you can follow me on Instagram at Bridget Marie in DC or on Twitter at Bridget Marie. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Bridget. So, Caitlin. Yes. Are you ready for some out of context cancellations? You know, I have been missing this segment and I'm happy we're back to it. Okay, we're going to start out with a couple a couple things we missed at uh, the end of Pride Month while we were on hiatus, which is cancel really ambitious Pride outfits that require lots of sewing and painting. Oh my gosh, no. No. <laughs> I reject this cancellation. I love out of control Pride outfits, but also I, I'll cancel the, the work and the, the stress that goes into them. Does, is, 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 do you think sure. that's fair? Do you think our listener will be okay, okay with this, uh, this adjusted cancellation? I'm not sure I'm one to speak. I think the most elaborate adjustment I've ever done for a pride outfit is I cut the like neck out of a t-shirt <laughs> to go to my first pride. I mean, that's fair. That's fair. Um, and also cancel having to work all pride weekend. Yeah, that sounds not ideal. Homophobic and transphobic. It is homophobic. Yeah. yeah it's not yeah. allowed. <laughs> what are they thinking? You know, where I live, it's really weird. Uh, pride is actually in June. Um, I mean, Pride is actually in May, so it's uh, it's a little different. I missed it this year because I wasn't expecting a May celebration. Um, we're also going to cancel companies that boast about how great they are for their queer employees, but don't offer any any insurance coverage for trans healthcare. That that sounds like some DEI bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it also reminds me of, like, um, 
like Starbucks makes a big deal about their trans inclusive healthcare and they like go out of their way to recruit like trans people to work in their stores. And then whenever there's like strike talk, the first thing they're like, well, if you do this, we might have to sacrifice the trans healthcare. And it's like, you know, your allyship is uh, skin deep here. Like, um, you know, what the fuck? Whew, yeah. Um, okay. So we're going to cancel uh, the Supreme Court again. Again. Okay. <laughs> I think that's just, um, like, that's a mainstay for all of our out of context cancellations at this point, And I'm here for ju- it. <laughs> just, as- just assume. Just assume. Um, let's see. Anti mask healthcare workers. That's, that's an interesting, uh, I- I'm, I'm, I'm really curious what the, what the thinking and rationale is there, but okay. Yeah. I have questions. <laughs> um, and then we're also going to cancel hanger loops and extra tags on clothes that don't need them. Uh, those can be not fun, se- like in a yeah. sensory way. So yeah, yeah, let's cancel them. Seems, thank God have we have this- scissors. I'm not going to cancel <laughs> scissors, so you can just clip those off. But so- then sometimes you have like a little like bump, which is also a problem. I have this dress where the hanger loops are always coming out the armholes. And I'm like, come on. Like stay in place i should just cut them off but i'm lazy what you know whatever we're gonna cancel running out of lactose pills on pizza sunday and that might be the most tragic one on this entire list devastating like devastating. worse than scotus in my opinion i might have to cancel you for that too. <laughs> <laughs> but yes yes uh, it, it is it is uh that that sounds like not a fun time for for your body Next, we're going to cancel licensing exams. And I, I don't have enough context for this one, but, you know, yeah. I, am, uh, I, am, I am the little puppet of our listeners. So <laughs> here we go. <laughs> Canceling those license exams. Um. <laughs> you know, as somebody who has taken licensing exams in the past, I support this. Okay. They're very stressful, even for somebody like me who has always been a good test taker. We're going to cancel extreme right-wing fundamentalist parents who aren't worthy to be your queer child's grandparents. That's heavy. Heart heart goes out to to your kiddo because your kiddo and glad your kiddo has supportive parents. That's so important. We're going to cancel chronic troublemakers who refuse to find a hobby that isn't trying to join communities and following cult leadership for dummies every single time. So I don't know, it sounds like people who are going it, someone who's going into communities and like trying to get like a cult following and be like the hero or the cool person. Um, I don't know. Again, I'm a puppet. I, lo- I-, I love I love being a puppet <laughs> for our listeners. Uh, it's my new kink. Oh, oh, whoa. <laughs> Did that go? Was that too far? Did that go too far? <laughs> oh, my God. Sorry, not sorry. Um <laughs> If you want to, s- <laughs> <sighs> okay. If you want, <laughs> we've lost it. We have. We've lost the plot. <laughs> if you want to submit your own out of context cancellations and support our show, you can do so on Patreon. At the $5 a month level, you get access to our Discord, and you can submit your own out-of-context cancellation in the Cancel This channel. Your support helps support our show, and you can join and learn more about other perks at www.patreon.com slash cancelmedaddy. 
Today's show was made by me, Oliver Ash Klein, and my incredible co-host, Caitlin Burns. D. Peter Schmidt made our theme song and Eden M.W. designed our graphics. Our show is made possible by the incredible cancelers supporting our work, especially the member of our Cancellor Hall of Fame, with the great power to cancel all enemies, Meg. We appreciate your support. Happy canceling! Mm-hmm.